1 Corinthians 14 and Mark chapter 10. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what has come to be known as the love chapter. Paul describes the most excellent way in this chapter. Love is seen in its actions and its attitudes. And there is to be an interdependence between the two. Actions are not enough. As Paul tells us in the first three verses, that even if one can do certain things, speak with the tongues of men and of angels, prophesy, know, and believe great things, give all that he or she possesses, including one's life and self-sacrifice, without love, the loveless person produces nothing of value. The loveless person is himself or herself of no value. The loveless person receives nothing of value. One must have the attitude of love which involves the intellect and the emotions. And as we saw last week, Paul gives a list of the qualities of love. It is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. Love is not rude is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And then he ends with the four, always love, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. But I want to sort of clear up something, hopefully make it plain to you today, that while actions are not enough, Paul says there must be love, there must, in fact, be action. And I think the story that I want to read before we get to First Corinthians 14 and Mark chapter 10, I think really illustrates this. If you'd follow along as I read Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This story is found in Matthew and Luke as well, in the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It has been referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, interestingly enough, only Luke tells us that he was a ruler. And in the story, we have a man who had done all that was required. Or so we thought. But one thing was lacking. And if we're not careful, we will think that, and I think probably he did as well when he walked away, that what was lacking was this requirement that Jesus made of him. And many people think that Jesus has made it of everyone since. That he had to sell all his possessions and give it to the poor. But we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that that's not sufficient. Paul says, if I sell everything I have, if I give everything I have to feed the poor, it's nothing. 
The rich young ruler wanted to gain something. And Paul says, if you give everything to the poor and you don't have love, you gain nothing. So what was missing in the life of this young man was love. And in his case, love had to be demonstrated in a specific action. And an action which would show where his love was focused. If he sold all he had and gave it to the poor, he would be showing love for others and therefore love for God. And we've talked about this before, but just to remind you, the two great commandments are we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to love our neighbors ourselves. Well, how do I know if I'm loving God as I should? Well, because I love my neighbor. My love for my neighbor is proof that I have love for God. And so if this man gave what he had and gave it to the poor to show his love for the poor, he would also show his love for God. If he refused, as he did, to sell all he had and give it to the poor, he would show where his love truly rested, and that was in his wealth. The reason I bring this up is that Paul is not saying that actions are nothing. Paul is not saying that one must possess a feeling of love. Paul is not saying that the right attitude is all that matters. Actions are important, and so is one's attitude. And one's attitude can be, but not always, but one's actions or attitude can be demonstrated by one's actions. But actions on their own are not sufficient. They are not sufficient. One more thing before we leave this passage and go back to 1 Corinthians. Um, one of the reasons that I chose to read it from Mark's account instead of Matthew's or Luke's is because Mark includes something that the other two do not. I don't know if you noticed it in verse number 21. Mark tells us Jesus looked at him and loved him. It's an amazingly moving statement that shows us something. In this dialogue, in this conversation, one of the two loved the other. Jesus loved this man. And because he loved him, he told him the truth. And he required him to do what one writer, or Wade Bradshaw, has referred to as the perfect action. It's not something that Jesus requires of all people, but of this man, because it would go to the heart of who he was. The other man, the rich young ruler, did not love Jesus. He loved his wealth more than any person, and therefore he was unwilling to part with it. Which is a double tragedy if you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, because wealth is not permanent, but love is. Love never fails. And here the man is, is faced with a choice. Choose something that is eternal, something that is permanent, or choose something that is temporal and that will pass away. And the man chose that which is temporary, his wealth. The Corinthians, from what we can tell in 1 Corinthians, are really enamored with spiritual gifts, and one in particular, speaking in tongues. In chapter 12, Paul has argued that there needs to be diversity. Everyone seems to want to do the same spiritual gift, the same manifestation of the Spirit. And he's like, wait a minute, 
You know, the body's made up of different parts. Everyone should have a different gift. But in chapter 13, Paul tells us something very important. The gifts are temporary. The gifts are partial. We know in part. Okay. And these things will cease. They will pass away. By contrast, love never fails. Now, with that in mind, we now come to chapter 14. It is the second A in the ABA scheme. The first A is general. Now we're in the second A. Paul will deal with specific corrections to the problem in the Corinthian church. And what is the problem? It is this fascination with speaking in tongues as the spiritual gift. In fact, there are people today who still are afflicted with this disease uh, who say, if you want to prove that you are a Christian, if you want to prove that you have the spirit, you must speak in tongues. And I think we will see that Paul is saying, well, in chapter 12, Paul tells us this is not the case. Everyone has a different manifestation. There are two parts to this chapter. We will look at the first half today, and the Lord willing, we will look at the second half next week. There are two issues in this chapter. They're both dealing with worship. The first is the need for intelligibility in public worship. This is uh, in the first 25 verses. Now, let me explain something. I I will use the word intelligibility a lot, I think, in this sermon. uh, And I hope that you understand what I mean by it. When I say this, I mean that something can be understood or comprehended, but not necessarily in the fullest sense. Thus, hopefully, when I speak, you understand what I'm saying, partially because I'm speaking in English and you understand English, but also because hopefully what I'm saying makes sense to you. And this, I think, is really important to Paul, that you need to be able to understand what is being said, and it needs, on some level, to make sense. So we will talk about that which is intelligible or intelligibility. What I mean is that which can be understood, the language and the message. A side note within this parenthesis, it may be that in your, you've experienced this, that in the past you've heard somebody speak, either in a casual sense or in a formal setting, and you understood what they said. It was clear enough. But sometime later, you're like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand the full implications of what they were saying. That's not my concern at this point, and I don't think it is for Paul either. It is rather that when you come to church, it should be done in a language that you can understand and you can make sense of what is going on. So first of all, there needs to be intelligibility in worship. We will look at that today. The second, which we will look at next week, is there needs to be order in worship. Things need to be done decently and in order, as Paul will tell us. In his call for intelligibility, Paul makes four points. First of all, that prophecy is the greater gift. Secondly, he gives various analogies, sort of pushing for intelligibility. Then, interestingly enough, application for believers and application for unbelievers. Uh, We'll round up this particular section. First, the first five verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. 
But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. This paragraph, I think, is critical to understanding what will follow in the rest of the chapter. First of all, it connects with the previous chapters, follow the way of love, the most excellent way. Paul talked about that in chapter 12 and then illustrated it in chapter 13. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts. He also mentioned that at the end of chapter 12. Uh, There is a difference, though, because here he says eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now he tells us what that greater gift is. It is, in fact, prophecy. He makes his point that building up the the congregation is to be the goal and that tongues are not understandable while prophecy is. And let's be honest, if you've read through the New Testament, the speaking in tongues business is not as clear as we might like it to be. I think this section clears it up to a certain degree. Paul opens with a couple of commands or imperatives. Follow the way of love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. These are imperatives. Paul's not saying, yeah, if if you'd like to. Paul's saying, this is what you should do. As people of love, you should follow the way of love and you should eagerly desire greater gifts. Someone might argue, though, but but you really can't force somebody to love. For some reason, the Bonnie Raitt song comes to my mind, you know, but I can't make you love me. And we think, well, Paul, how dare you as, as an apostle, as a minister, how can you say to people, you must follow the way of love? Stop and think a minute, though. Paul has been arguing with the Corinthians. They say a spiritual person, they have all these gifts, or they speak in tongues. Paul says a spiritual person has the Spirit of God, and they follow the way of love. Love is the only thing that is permanent. The gifts will pass away. So love is the proof that someone is, in fact, a Christian. If one is a Christian, one has the Spirit of God, one must be marked by love. And so the command to follow the way of love is entirely appropriate. This is what it means to be a Christian. It is not optional. I I fear, though, that it has been made to seem to be optional. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard somebody say this, but certainly the sentiment has been expressed by many people. You know, I love the Lord, I love God, it's people I can't stand. Well, that's unacceptable. Our love for God is proved in our love for our neighbor. And if we are people of the Spirit, then we are to be people of love. We are the body of Christ. And we are to display the love of Christ. We are to follow the way of love. And and so Paul, in saying... Follow the way. You must do this in his command. is entirely appropriate. One side note uh, to sort of fill in something here. At the end of chapter 12, 
Paul said, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Um, the word that he used there in Greek was charismata, which is where we get charismatic. It's made up of two words, and it literally means grace gifts or gracious gifts, gifts of grace. Here in chapter 14, Paul doesn't use that word. He uses another word, the word pneumatica, which means spiritual things. He used it at the beginning of chapter 12. In chapter 12, Paul's focus is different. He's talking about what Christ has given to the church. Here, he's talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit in public worship. And that is revealed through spiritual gifts. So Paul opens with these two commands to God's people as they meet in public worship. Then he tells us what the greater gifts are. Well, for him there is in fact one greater gift, and that is prophecy. And in verses 2, 3, and 4, he gives us a couple of pairs to contrast tongues, which is what the Corinthians are all hot for, and prophecy, what Paul believes is the greater gift. The audience of the gift is the first issue. If you speak in tongues, you're not speaking to human beings, you're talking to God. If you prophesy, you're talking to people. This begins, okay, now it begins to sort of make sense. It begins to give us a sense of what speaking in tongues is. Speaking in tongues for the Corinthians was not speaking a language. They thought they were speaking the language of angels, but it was not intelligible. In fact, I would dare say that somebody who didn't understand what was going on would say it was just gibberish. It it didn't make any sense whatsoever. And Paul says, so if you're speaking gibberish, we all can't understand you. The people don't understand you. God does. But we don't. So understand that when you speak in tongues, you're not speaking for the benefit of other people. That's the second issue, and that is the beneficiary. The one who speaks in tongues benefits himself or herself. The person who prophesies, the person who proclaims or preaches, is benefiting the congregation. And so now something else becomes clear. For Paul, the purpose of public worship is to build up the church, the edification of the church. And for all the good things that Paul says about speaking in tongues, for him, prophecy is the gift that must be seen in public worship. Some of you may be saying, well, speaking in tongues, Paul says good things about that. Well, actually, he does. That it is speaking to God, I think, in private devotion rather than public worship. It is said, uh, what is said is mysteries that are given by the Spirit. And it edifies the speaker. But Paul is not talking here about when you're alone and you pray alone. What he's talking about when you're meeting with other Christians when you are in public worship. In such a context, tongues should not be present. Unless there's someone there who can, who can interpret, who understands what you're saying, and then they can tell, oh, you know what sounded like gibberish to you? Here, let me explain it to you in English. This is what this person was saying. Paul's focus through this whole book, but particularly in this section, is edification, building up, strengthening the church. In chapter 8, he said, love builds up. 
having written about love in all of chapter 13. He now calls on the Corinthians to follow the way of love and in that context seek the things of the Spirit, the things that will build up, therefore prophecy. If love builds up and the Spirit is the Spirit of God in the church and you want to build up the church, then there needs to be the gift of prophecy. And if we do that, Paul says, we will strengthen, we will encourage, and we will comfort. If you look at verse number five, Paul, I think here, is not speaking of public worship at the beginning, where he says, I would like all of you to speak in tongues. It's like, well, wait a minute, Paul, we thought, we thought you wanted prophecy. No, he's concerned about public worship. And therefore, the speaking in tongues, that's fine for Paul, but not in public. That is something that is to be done in private. In verses 6 through 12, Paul gives us some analogies that argue for intelligibility, that say, listen, when you get together and you worship, it needs to make sense. You need to understand Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 6 through 12. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle. So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking in the air, or into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp, grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Paul's premise is simple. I think it's, it, and it's very clear. For something to build up the church, it must be intelligible, it must be understood by all who are participating. The Corinthians, on the other hand, are so big on tongues that they're really, they have really strong reservations about Paul, and probably with regard to his speaking in tongues. And so Paul opens up, and he says, Now brothers, they are his brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will it be to you? Now, we know that Paul intended to go back to Corinth. He's already mentioned this twice, in chapter 4. And in chapter 11, when the, the mess with the Lord's Supper, and he says, you know, when I come to you, I'll give further instructions. So we know that he's intending to go back. We're not sure, and it may be, well, it is pure speculation, the Corinthians didn't want him to come back. But if he did come back, they wanted him to speak in tongues so that they would know he was spiritual. And Paul's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Because if I come back, if I come all the way back to Corinth and I get up and I speak in an unknown language, 
How does that help you? What good is that to you? What would benefit them would be a word of instruction, a prophecy, some revelation or knowledge. Information that he can pass on to them that they can understand and apprehend and put into practice. Paul gives some examples, some analogies that show that public worship should make sense. He begins with musical instruments, the flute and the harp, which were common in that ancient world. Um, For a listener to know what's being played, you have to pick out particular notes. Otherwise, it's like we oftentimes have after the service here on Sundays when uh, Henry or others get up to the piano and just sort of bang away. it doesn't, it's not music, they're not playing a particular tune. Uh, they're just, or if one would strum a harp or just sort of blow in a flute, and it's not music, we don't know what you're playing, we can't sing along, we can't appreciate what is happening. The trumpet in the battlefield, in the ancient world, and as not that ancient, even in our armed forces in the past, with the bugle. Because they didn't have cell phones or walkie-talkies, the trumpet would be the instrument that would give a certain signal, and the signal would either be to charge or to retreat, to regroup. But if, if the guy on the bugle just starts you know, just blowing in and not picking particular notes, how will anyone know what they are supposed to do? In the same way, if you come to church... And whoever's in front begins to speak in a language you don't understand, then how can you appreciate, how can you join in with worship? More than that, how will you be strengthened or encouraged or comforted? Paul moves from instruments to the world of languages. Um, In a city like Corinth, they must have had dozens of foreign languages spoken there particularly in the marketplace, which is where Paul worked as a tent maker. He was familiar with the concept of a stranger coming into town who spoke a different language. Paul's like, you know what, if he speaks a language that I don't understand, then we're foreigners to each other. We're foreigners. I have to tell you, uh, this has happened to me several times when I... And it happens at this one particular restaurant where I uh, Filipino, get some Filipino food and I order in Tagalog because I speak Tagalog. And I've had several people say to me, oh, I thought you were a foreigner. Um, Paul says, if you don't understand each other, indeed you are a foreigner. And wouldn't that be a strange thing to say about church? Yes, I went to church today with a bunch of foreigners. I didn't understand anything that was going on there. Well, that's not the function of public worship. It's to build up. And how can I be built up? How can I be encouraged? How can I be instructed if I don't understand what is going on? This is sort of an important thing to me. My dissertation was on a book written in 1610, written by a Tagalog to teach Tagalogs how to speak Spanish. Because he understood that if they didn't learn Spanish the Spaniards would sort of run over them and do whatever they wanted, which they ended up doing anyway. Um, It's interesting that Paul uses this analogy because we are not to be foreigners. We're brothers and sisters. We belong to each other. If we don't understand each other, then there's something, something seriously wrong. Now Paul makes the application 
First to the believing community in verses 13 through 19. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your, to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may well be giving thanks, or you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Hmm. Paul continues to make his point, and he makes the application to the believing community. And again, I think that Paul's point is very clear. In public worship, we need to understand what's going on. And it's driven home by verse number 19. In the, in the church, I would rather speak five words that give instruction than 10,000 in a tongue that no one can understand. So if you're going to speak in tongues in, in public worship, then you need to pray that you would also be able to give the interpretation. It seems simple enough, but there are certain issues that come up that make this somewhat difficult. First is the contrast between doing something with your spirit and doing it with your mind. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. I must confess to you that I'm not completely clear about what Paul means here. I do think that Paul is speaking of private worship, private devotion, as he does in verse number 16. I do believe that Paul wanted the mind to be fruitful, to understand what was going on, that we understand what we are saying in prayer. There may be times in private prayer where, when words seem inadequate. And whatever comes out of us at that point, sometimes it's I think for me, oftentimes it's a physical, I, no, I don't, you know, in, in the midst of a situation, praying to God, just saying, I don't know what needs to be done here. I think in my prayer life, that's the most physical I become, is when, I, when the words just, words cannot express either distress or pain, or even joy. I mean, it's not all negative, but where words fail me. And I know that God understands because he knows me better than I know myself. For some people, they're tears. And that in prayer, they want to say things, but they, don't, they can't express it. But in, in a sense of emotion, they are almost overwhelmed. And tears are, if you wish, their prayer to God. For Paul and the Corinthians, it was... Speaking in tongues, something which, by the way, and we can talk about this later if you wish, I think is no longer uh, is no longer a gift given by the Spirit. We see that, saw that in chapter 13. What is important for Paul is that 
the mind be engaged. So that even when I raise my hands, I shrug in frustration, I still know what the issue is at hand. I think for the Corinthians it was quite different. This past week, he and I uh, saw the latest Harry Potter movie, The Prisoner of Azkaban, and there was a, one particular scene there where Emma Thompson uh, speaks basically a prediction, and then she comes out of it and she doesn't realize that she said something. I think that's what the Corinthians were thinking. Oh, when I speak in tongues, I, I actually, it's not, I don't know what I'm saying, it's just sort of passing through me. And Paul's like, well, what good is that? I want my mind to be engaged. I want to understand what is going on. And then verse number 18, I think, throws most non-charismatic Christians for a loop. Um, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Uh, One writer put it this way. One wonders who is more greatly surprised, the Corinthians themselves or the contemporary reader. I mean, people today are like, what? Paul spoke in tongues more than anybody else? That's, that's unbelievable. Well, let's put that aside for a minute. For the Corinthians, it was unbelievable. Because remember, if Paul didn't do this in public, he did this in his private prayer, they never got to see him do this. And so when he says, I do this more than all of you, wow, that's certainly not what they expected. But for Paul, it's not for the church. Because when we get together, we need to understand what is going on. When we are alone with God, when God can read our thoughts and our hearts, even when the words don't come out the way they should, God knows what we're saying. Paul said that's entirely appropriate. Paul says, you know what, if you, if you speak in tongues in church, the other people cannot join in with what is going on. And here he talks about the custom of saying Amen or Amen, which comes from the Jewish synagogue practice. And that is, as someone was either reading the scriptures or praying or giving a word of encouragement, if the people agreed with what was being said, they would say Amen or Amen. If you come from the South and the Southern Baptists or Fundamental Baptists, so you hear this a lot more, that in the, you know, in the sermon as the preachers preaching, people say, Amen. As much as to say, I agree with that. But if I don't understand you, I can't say I agree with you because I don't know what you're saying. I have no idea what you're saying. You may be thanking God. Paul doesn't say this, but one could also say you may be blaspheming God. I don't know what you're saying. So I can't join in with you because worship, after all, is to be something we do together. Now we come to the last part. The application for unbelievers. I think this is a difficult chapter and this is probably the most difficult part of this difficult chapter. As I read it, I think what I want you to to see, though, and what grabs me when I read this, and what I find really interesting, is that Paul expects that unbelievers will attend public worship. That is, when Christians get together, Paul has every expectation that unbelievers will be there as well. 
read verses 20 through 25. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not unbelievers, or not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some do not understand, or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Paul again addresses them as brothers. For all their, for all their foibles, for all their mistakes, they are his brothers and sisters in Christ. He challenges them. Stop thinking. Stop being like children. That when it comes to evil, yeah, be like an infant. An infant doesn't know. They're innocent. But in your thinking, you should be more adult and less childlike. What does that mean? He then quotes from the Old Testament. He refers to it as the law. It's actually from Isaiah chapter 28. He uses law to refer to the Old the whole Old Testament. Paul knows where this comes from, by the way. And from this Old Testament passage, Paul makes two assertions. First of all, that speaking in tongues is not a sign for believers. It's a sign for unbelievers. And secondly, prophecy is for believers, not unbelievers. What does he mean? The first assertion that tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers this directly contradicts the Corinthian position and many in the charismatic movement today who insist we must have evidence that you have the spirit. We want proof. We want a sign. You must speak in tongues. And Paul's like, you know what? Tongues are not a sign for believers. They are a sign for unbelievers. And by sign, he doesn't mean proof or evidence. As in, you know, show me a sign. But rather, it is an expression of God's attitude. Something that signifies either his pleasure or his disapproval. How are tongues a sign? Well, Paul says if an unbeliever walks into public worship, and everybody, and he's obviously using hyperbole, if all are speaking in tongues, the unbeliever cannot understand he or she cannot understand what is being said. They think you're all crazy, you're out of your mind, and they leave not having heard the gospel, not having the opportunity to turn to Christ. For Paul, the Corinthians need to grow up and stop being childish and to be adult and to realize that they are actually driving people away without the gospel. You see, 
the passage from Isaiah, God said, listen, I'm going to send people to them who speak a language they don't understand. They're going to speak the truth, but since they don't understand, they will be condemned. And Paul says, is that actually what you want to do? Do you want to condemn unbelievers because of speaking in tongues? The second assertion is that prophecy, on the other hand, is a sign for believers. It functions as a sign of God's approval, God's presence in their midst. The way that we know God is present with us is the proclamation of the word of God. Not speaking in tongues. But there's a side benefit. Remember, this section is an application for unbelievers. If an unbeliever comes in and they hear the word of God being proclaimed and preached, then that person can understand the message. Then they can be convicted and then they can be converted and say, listen, what you're saying is true. But it all ties into one thing they need to understand. Let's wrap this all together. It is a difficult section, at least in the details, but I think Paul's point is very clear. When you and I see each other and we meet together to worship God, we need to understand. It needs to make sense. We sing hymns in the language that we understand. We have the reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament in the language that we understand. When we speak of our things we are thankful for, things that we would like remembered in prayer, we speak in English so that we can understand each other. I preach in English and I try to present scripture in a way that can be comprehended. If we do not do this, then how will we learn? How will we grow? How will we be encouraged? How will we be comforted? Paul says, when you meet together, you need to understand each other. Having said that, we will see next week, Paul will say, when you get together, you need to do things not chaotically. Where you have all these different people talking at the same time. Do things in order. Because you know what? It doesn't do good if it doesn't do us any good if we're all speaking English, but we're all doing it at the same time. There needs to be order in public worship. And we will see that the Lord willing next week. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps it is because we are human that we feel a tension, we feel torn between the emotional aspect of our faith and the intellectual aspect. Between our minds and our spirits. I thank you that when we are alone with you in prayer and in praise, you hear us. And it is between you and us. But in public worship, it isn't just about me and you, but about your people, the congregation, 
as we meet to worship you. We need to understand each other, encourage each other, build each other up. This requires that what we do make sense, that it be intelligible. This passage is difficult, Father, and I pray that in the days to come, as we think about it and meditate on it, to have a better understanding of what Paul is saying. Now we remember the gift of your son, his death. And we are reminded that when he was here among us, he spoke in words that people could understand and conveyed to them the truth of the gospel. Today, as we remember his death, we proclaim it until he returns. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.